Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. In today's episode, we speak with John Collar, a German entrepreneur based in China with an extensive background in AI product management. John is the co-founder of Unpack AI, an e-learning startup that makes AI and deep learning education as accessible as possible by offering affordable, virtual, and project-based boot camps to business professionals. John is also a program consultant for the Startup Yard, a global think tank that provides a pre-accelerator boot camp for international budding entrepreneurs looking to kick off their startup in China. We cover a wide range of topics, including the challenges faced by and potential advantages for foreign entrepreneurs in China. We discuss the significant changes to the education space in China. We look at how KOL and influencer marketing has changed in China. We discuss John's newest creation, Unpack AI, and the problems he's solving with it. And we dive into a broader look at what AI is really capable of and how China is exploring those options compared with the West. Enjoy. So essentially, um, in China, we're in a situation where you only have one choice as a young person in China, it's university. There's no focus on really call and blue and white collar jobs, but there's no focus on the vocational training anymore, right? The crazy thing, what's going to happen is that the jobs that now have Chinese people, young people have been educated for, these are probably jobs that will be optimized the quickest. If you think about accounting, about, I mean, computer science, right? There's so many things there that will be optimized and the things that can be optimized the latest actually those vocational training based trainings where you go plumbering where you fix up the house right and i think that's uh, something that um, is going to be very scary home to over 4 billion people the asia pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet not only is it home to half the world's under 30 population but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users it's a market no globally minded brand should ignore but entering markets like china is no easy task just ask the likes of microsoft google uber and facebook times are changing and with the right partners doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success expanding into the markets of the middle kingdom i myself spent eight years in china mostly as a venture capitalist helping early stage tech companies enter the asia pacific market successfully this show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful china entry and growth strategies by interviewing the people behind those success stories my name is todd embley and welcome to the negotiation brought to you by wpic marketing and technologies john welcome to the podcast thanks for coming on today yeah thanks for having me it's um it's a pleasure so as we usually do please if you don't mind introduce yourself and how you ended up in china yeah, I mean, um, I've, uh, my name is John. Um, I'm a German entrepreneur in China right now. I've been in China for about four years. And in my four years in China, I have built up two companies. Um, I'm going to get into detail on that maybe later, I'm sure as well. But yeah, I've had a four years of entrepreneurial ride as a foreign founder in China. It's been very, very, very interesting. But before I did that, I've been um, originally from Berlin. Um, I've been all across the world. I've studied and um, worked all across the world as well. And uh, countries like um, the, the US, um, uh, in, in Canada, in, in London as well. And um, I actually studied in, in Hamburg, in a very beautiful city in Germany, in the north of Germany. And then right after I graduated, I actually made my way to China. It was my kind of kickoff. And it was just very, very, very special time since then. And yeah, and I think I've made many interesting experiences that I would like to share today as well. What was the spark that led you to want to go to China? Um, yeah, I mean, initially, actually, I, uh, Germany is a very, very comfortable place, a very, very regulated, very, um, very, very nice place to be in. However, for me, someone who at that point of time, I wanted to 
refuel and be in a very different ecosystem. So I was looking at many different ecosystems across the world. And um, at that point of time, while studying, I already knew I wanted to start my own company. I was looking at different ecosystems across the world. And um, one of them was South um, America. One of them was Asia, in particular China. And the reason why China attracted me so much, because it's just very, very different of how um, Germany's kind of built up. Germany's this developed country and in other countries such as China or in South, South America, Argentina, Brazil, it's very, very quickly developing and that attracted me very, very much. And also back in Germany, I did have one of my very best friends. He's um, ethnically Chinese. And I think that kind of gave me also kind of the interest in regards to the culture and obviously the language, something that really pulled me in as well, because it's so, so, so different from any mm. European language that you've encountered. So I could see that China was the mix between the business opportunities for my potential future company, as well as giving me that interest in culture and language that was very, very contrast. It was a big contrast to the um, culture and the language that I saw in Germany and in Europe and um, European countries or Western countries. So I think that was gave me the spark and the real interest that actually then made my way to China. We wanted to ask you about how China may have changed in the, the four years that you've extensively spent time in China. But you rightly acknowledged that that topic has been covered and discussed quite often and very widely. So I'd like to maybe color it just a little bit different and maybe ask for a more particular perspective or a particular example that you can point to to go alongside with others more personal uh, witnesses of that kind of change. How did that come across and become evident to you in your role and who you are and what you've been doing in China? The most apparent thing how I experienced change in China is that the first time I came to China is that I, I worked in the industry, which is the bike sharing industry. And for those people who remember, bike sharing was a huge trend in China. Was, um, so what I've then realized that in China, there are these very particular trends over a certain amount of time in China. And the interesting thing about China is that they change so quickly. Because so the first time I came to China, I was working in the bike sharing industry in a, for a, a, bike, sh a bike sharing company called O-Bike. Um, that at this point of right now doesn't even exist anymore. Um, so I think that's how I experienced chi um, China from my personal point of uh, view. I joined industry, it developed very quickly, and then companies died out and the market, the market um, organized itself. And I think that's something that happens in China more quickly than in other markets. So I think that's where I think um, I can see many, many changes when it comes to, to, to kind of speed in China that markets really kind of reorganize themselves. They grow and kind of like flatten and stagnate after uh, very, very quickly. And I think that was the interesting side that I could uh, kind of offer from that. However, also, um, since I've been an entrepreneur in China over the last four years, um, I could definitely see that, I can see the development of foreign entrepreneurship in China. And I think that was something very interesting to see how, especially because for COVID, I could see so many more excitement around kind of like foreign entrepreneurship, which honestly, over the last 10 years, I kind of argue might be able to give a better opinion on it as well, has been also fairly statement. However, now I feel like before COVID more in particular, I could see more and more foreign entrepreneurs coming to China. And that was a change I was actually seeing. I was very excited about that. I got into the space. We, we had a community growing, startup grind, got bigger and bigger and bigger. And I think that was a huge uh, like uh, foreign entrepreneurship foundation that was really growing and growing. And now for COVID, it kind of made it a little bit more difficult. However, now we've been seeing like many people 
wanting to come from Germany, from Europe. And I think there was a change I'm seeing. However, I also do feel like the, the longer you're in China, you kind of become very used to the change, right? So I, I wouldn't say like, oh yeah, now this happened, that. It's now something very normal for me. And I think people who spent the China and doing business here for a very long time, they just got to be acclimated to it and they get very normalized to it. So um, for me personally, yeah, China, there's a lot of change. However, I think it's very normal now. I'll probably go back to Germany and say, oh, it's actually very slow here. I'm not entirely sure. So for me to say, ah, oh, so many things change, it's normal. I think that change things, it's, it's, it's kind of constant, right? So what I say, it's quicker than other countries, maybe, but I also think it's, um, it's just, it, it's just some of that, something that became normal for me personally. Yeah, I was going to ask what it's like when you do return, but you haven't made that trip back yet to kind of sit in and understand that things moved really fast where you were and now things seem slower. Exactly. Yeah, I think that's an yeah. interesting observation. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, was, I haven't been home for two years almost, which was also down to COVID. And um, so um, once I return, hopefully December, um, I'll see how things will, will seem obviously planning to come back to China afterwards. We talk a lot about the challenges of what it's like to do a startup. Doing a startup is really, really hard. We all know that. Can you potentially juxtapose or compare the differences in Chinese national, Chinese startup challenges in China versus foreign person startup challenges in China? I think that's a great question. So I think how I would compare it actually is that as you said, doing a startup is very, very difficult. However, the set of problems that a foreign founder encounters in China and a Chinese uh, uh, startup owner in China, they're just different, right? And they, 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 there's obviously an overlap there, but they're not less, or they're not worse or easier. They're just different. So as a, as a, as a foreign founder, especially, you have to be able to still show yourself an, as an expert in a certain market while being in China, while maybe not being able to speak fluent Chinese, uh, while still be not really culturally having some kind of barrier there. So I think what I encountered, also from my personal and um, encountering this, this, this problem, uh, when we tried to fundraise with our first company, I really tried so hard to kind of pose myself as this Chinese expert about the Chinese market. I was trying to so hard to speak the most perfect Chinese, how it's so difficult because investors look at me and they see this, this, this white guy trying to be Chinese. And those were super, super tough and it didn't really work out for me. So what I've then realized, hey, John, why are you trying to lean into something you're not? Why don't you try to work on trying to be this, this person who might be global expert for the Chinese market? And that's where you offer your new perspective. That's where you're particular. That's your strength. So I think the difficulty here for foreign founders to be able to find that perspective. Hey, how can I position myself to my strengths, right? I'm not trying to be Chinese. I'm not trying to be a Chinese expert necessarily for the Chinese market and trying to be better than Chinese entrepreneurs for the local market. However, what I can do is I can be the global, the global opening to the global market. And I think these are the kind of challenges, especially talking to investors, to other business partners, kind of positioning yourself in a way where you can say, hey, I'm actually offering this added value. And I can actually be an expert about kind of like inbound, outbound, global. And I think that's something as a foreign founder, you really have to face on a daily basis because you just are not Chinese. And it's also wrong for you to kind of try to be that. <clears throat> so on the other side, if you are actually Chinese uh, founder in, in China, is that you are actually trying to 
there's such a huge level of competition, right? Because now, you know, the font like the Chinese base for the Chinese market. And actually in China, um, like entrepreneurship is very, very common. There's so many entrepreneurs. There's so many people really into different kinds of projects. And that's why the competition, every single level, you go even from the beginning, it starts with education in China and then it starts with entrepreneurship in China. So entrepreneurship in China is so difficult also because there's so many, there's such a huge field of companies. So you try to stick out in a huge field of companies where you... You might not have a huge educational background. It's so, so, so difficult. So I think these are kind of like, in as a Chinese, you struggle with a huge field of competition. And as a foreigner, obviously struggle to be at the year foreigner in China. However, either way, you can find a certain way you can present yourself that actually can kind of level you away from the rest of the playing field. And I think these are the kind of different challenges I was talking about. Um, and also, obviously, um, there are many, many resources. You just have to know how to get them, right? And that's just a matter of what the kind of people you know. So develop requires you actually getting into the ecosystem. You're opening yourself up. We just talked about it. if you speak Chinese, it's going to make it a little bit easier. But if you don't, it's also possible. Um, so I think these are the kind of challenges that as a foreign founder I faced. But I think now after kind of like after investing two, three years into that, I think I've actually gotten a better grasp about the ecosystem now. I've been able to know where I should go to if I have certain problems. And even now, I'm only still in the initial phase of a startup. So I'm, I'm very curious to see how it's going to get difficult if you actually look at more taxes based in um, kind of if you think of the operational scale of actually building a bigger and bigger company as a foreign in China. Um, and I think that's what we're facing currently troubles where you have the Chinese foreign identity um, and trying to build um, <laughs> China business in China actually make transactions in with direct Chinese consumers. And that's actually very tough in China where you have to find a, a way around that because when it goes into data, how do you store customer data in China and all these specific things you're then going to face once you grow actually as a company in China. So that's another challenge we will face Initially, eventually as a foreign founded foreign wholly foreign owned company in china right now but yeah so i think this kind of different it's a very different set of problems i'm not saying one of worse than the other but it's a very very different set of problems is there some advantages for foreign startups in in china i can obviously point to and we could we could point to many many advantages for you know, local startups in their local ecosystems and uh, a lot of areas where, where foreigners would uh, foreign startups would, would, would have some troubles. Um, and I'm especially thinking of just culturally understanding consumer tastes and preferences or how business is done if you're in a B2B landscape, but can you maybe call out one or two potential advantages, maybe cultural, maybe educationally, maybe something else that a foreign startup might, actually enjoy doing their startup in China? We are in the educational space, right? So what we can actually do, we can look at how is education being done in the West and how is it being done in China? And in particular, when it comes to education in China, it has been something that is even, even more standardized than it has been in the West, right? It's something education in China is super, super standardized. It's something that you've tried to tr align and align and make it fair for everyone across an entire country with such a huge population. And I think that's why um, education in China, especially from until at, um, university, has been very, very standardized and very, very old school. So now that we're in the education space, when it comes to AI, teaching AI, we're actually able to take practices and ideas from the Western education system and kind of bring them over to China. We're able to apply certain practices that might, that will work better 
um, in the sense of actually educating people. However, now we're obviously facing the challenge of applying that to the Chinese mindset right, and trying to merge those two things together. But the benefit we have is that we have these two kind of mindsets that can now meddle together and build something better out of the both two. I'm not saying we can fully apply the Western education system to the Chinese market. However, this is one of the benefits you can see, right? You have this different alternative experience that we could provide in the local market, whereas local founders and local, um, they don't really have that. And I think that's one of the bigger advantages you can really use, and especially in our case, and that we are using right now to make it more um, more, more accessible. One reason, one example of that is, for example, now we're using more code-based learning where you work as a group of people, not something totally new, but it's honestly not, not many people good in, in China. And China, it's very, very much about um, listening and only listening to one person talking, having recorded videos, but it's not really this interactional, interactive kind of environment. So I think that's one example where I can say, hey, we have actually been able to use our Western, our international background to actually apply it or are trying to apply it in a, a market like China. So I think that's one of the uh, very, very strong examples where I can see a huge opportunity for us um, in the educational space. I'd like your take on where are we at in China with regards to education, because there's been a lot of news. There have been some new laws that have been passed. How has that impacted you? What are the changes you're seeing in the education space around China? I mean, it's a, it's a huge question. Education in China is a huge topic because it's seen as the lever for families to kind of push their children to newer found wealth. And that's obviously recently in China been a huge, huge, huge topic. So education is the cornerstone in China. And the, the willingness that families in China are able to, I want to spend and invest money and time onto that is a lot higher than it is in the West. So having kind of gone from that kind of like that environment, now we talk of um, education and education, as I was saying before, it's something that this Chinese government has been trying to standardize and make fair for everyone. And then it goes to the Gaokao, which is this huge test for all the young people in China before they go to university. And it's a game changer for everything that defines how much success you'll have later on. So education has been such a cornerstone, it's so, 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 so important. And being in this space is such a huge market in China. So obviously, recently we've seen um, more and more um, regulation towards that. And the reason that is that the Chinese government wants to have a, a better grasp, better hold and control of how people in China are kind of educated. How is the system being um, developed, right? Um, otherwise, um, we've, we've seen regulations towards the space, which was developing like crazy people were charging very high prices. Um, students, they were working so many hours because families were trying to get an edge for their for their families, for their students, because they want to have a bright future. And it's very reasonable because this idea of competition is so huge in China. So families, they want to give their children, their families an edge over the others. That's why education, the more you can educate, the more you can have a brighter future. That's why educational space in China is so important. And that's why there's so many opportunities. And that's, it's, it's, it's something that develops from the beginning to the end as well. But yeah, I think how I see um, the, fu the, the future development is that education in China will be more and more, especially for younger people, will be more and more controlled. Um, it will be in a more controlled um, system where people are not getting overloaded with stuff, where, where, where the price are also somewhat regulated and where the government is able to have a better grasp of what's actually happening because the private sector has been getting more and more out of control there. That's why there have been more and more regulations. How it's going to look in the future, I'm very, very curious. 
Um, I'm not entirely sure it's going to develop, but I think there's going to be more control and more maybe also on the content, whatever, for, for younger people in China. And I think for us in particular, it's not going to be a huge challenge just, just yet. I read that they have now removed English from being tested on, I think, either a biannual or annual basis where they're actually relaxing the amount of testing that is going on in China, where now only Mandarin and math are the two mandatory test subjects and then others will be uh, looked at on an ad hoc basis from there. And so it's it's I see a change in the education space, both on regulation and relaxation, um, which is just so interesting to me. I know that when we moved out of China, my son went to a Montessori preschool in uh, the French concession and then in Shanghai. And then we moved over to San Francisco and he did kindergarten in San Francisco and had loads of homework. And then we moved to Canada, who have more adopted a Scandinavian style school. And he hasn't had homework ever since. And now he's going into grade five. So hopefully he has some homework this week, this year. However, so it's been interesting. Do you find some fascinating top level changes going on in education where they might actually even be relaxing some of the pressures? Yeah, for sure. I mean, if I talk to any of my friends around kind of the, in my generation, it's like around the age of uh, 25 to 30. Um, if I talk to any of them and ask them about what was your experience like being in, um, so before high school, uh, before university, high school, preschool, middle school, whatever, how was your experience? And all of them told me about the huge struggle they had, you know, studying. That was, was the most difficult time of their life. So what I actually say, I think if this, at the time before university for every Chinese person is at least until now, has been the biggest, biggest struggle of their entire life because it's such a huge competition, right? They invest so much time. They start from um, eight o'clock in the morning and goes until eight o'clock in the evening. And they just have to study, even that they have to further continue studying. So every single of my friends I talk to, they talk about the huge struggle that they had. And it's getting, it's, it's, it was gotten, got more and worse and worse and worse, more and more pressure on the students. So that resulted in this people get, um, students get out of, out of this time and then universities more relaxed time. However, there's so much pressure, the societal pressure then obviously affects how they think about their life, right? Oh, do I still want to have children? I right? do I always still want to have like children that go for the same circuit I did, right? Then I have to still think of my housing, right? I have to buy a house, all these societal pressures, they're just too much. And the result of that is that um, young people in China, they don't really think anymore of, oh, you know, children, you know, is it really something I want to have? Another added pressure on top of all everything I have already. And that's obviously in China, a cra that's a crazy situation because China had the one-child policy, the two-child policy, now the three-child policy. They're trying to really emphasize, hey, we need more and more families, more and more children. However, the young people in China, have been all these societal pressures, they only feel like having three children if they want to have some at all and and obviously that's a, that's a huge issue so i think that's also definitely one of the reasons why the chinese government is saying this is something where we need to regulate right they haven't really started going yet on the housing market they now start with education to kind of relieve the pressure there so essentially um in china we're in a situation where where you only have one choice as an um as a young person in china it's university there's no focus on really you call them blue and white color jobs, but there's no focus on the vocational training anymore, right? More going and um, plumbering, whatever. And the crazy thing, what's going to happen is that the jobs that now have Chinese people, young people have been educated for, these are probably jobs that will be optimized the quickest. 
if you think about accounting, about, I mean, computer science, right? There's so many things there that will be automized and the things that can be automized, the latest, actually those vocational training-based trainings where you go plumbering, where you fix up the house, right? And I think that's uh, something that um, is going to be very scary um, moving forward. So because we have this high demand um, in, in, in all these like other jobs that have not really been necessarily been educated for. So I think that's my kind of like my direct response and reaction to kind of the question that uh, because it's a very, very cultural change and um, situation that will be very, very tricky to solve. Yeah. Okay. I appreciate you diving in on that. Let's talk a little bit about AI and let's start that with a discussion around the AI tech startup that was focused on influencer marketing and the entertainment industry. Uh, what was it? What were you trying to do? What did you learn about those spaces during that time? Okay. So we started a company, started a company about four years ago with my co-founder that I met at Tsinghua University. And um, what we did, we essentially built a, a company. We wanted to provide a data analytics platform, data analytics platform for influencers in China. Influencers in China are traditionally called KOL. Um, that's a key opinion leader. And these KOLs in China, they're huge. And um, we essentially want to provide um, data analytics services for them to better understand their audience and for them to better suit and tailor their content to kind of have the next content um, that they post be very data-backed and data-driven. And here we were collaborating with two parties. One of them said was, as I said, the KOL, the key opinion leader. On the other side was the MCN, which stands for Multi-Channel Network, which is the talent agency that is standing behind the influencer. So we are providing a data analytics solution for them to better manage um, the content for ben for the MCN to better manage the influencer. And, and I think that, that that was an exciting space because that has been something over the last four or five years that has been growing very, very quickly in China. There was a huge trend um, when during the start of COVID where the influencer space has been seeing this new phenomena, which is called um, e-commerce live streaming. Um, and then on, on these platforms such as TikTok in China or other platforms in China, these KOLs they went out and sold products online. And this is also something we had it essentially focused very, very much on the data side and actually provided um, also focus on um, using AI to actually give content recommendations. So that was just what the company was about. If we not talk about the industry, what I've learned about it is is that the, the KOL, the influence space, is wildly different than what is in the West. Kind of the more evolved version. Why is that? Because China, pe uh, people in China, they have, especially with the current generation, the young generation, have grown up with technologies that are way more embedded into their normal life than it is in the West. Um, an example on that is payment. And an example of this is, is all these different other, also education. It's, it's a lot more ingrained in the culture, using digital, using phones, um, than it is in um, the West. And the same thing is also for social media. So you growing up as a young person, you are more closer to social media platforms. We now obviously seeing something very similar that's going to move further and further in the West, but it's even more extreme in China. So the the, the position of influencer is, goes way beyond being able to post pictures on Instagram and, hey, hey, look at my, look, at it's, it's a lot more, hey, you really feel more connected to that. And it's something you really trust. And um, Chinese consumers, there's a huge, there's a huge um, level of, um, of, of consumption there, right? And their level of 
um, demands and requirements also, they're a lot more picky because there are a lot more supplies out there, a lot more products, a lot more service that around build around these Chinese consumers because they're very, very picky. And the power that has come through that to show how we can actually effectively do sales to these um, directly to Chinese consumers has been through KOLs because KOLs are seen, hey, I trust a person and if he recommends me something, I'm mostly likely going to buy it. So markets like e-commerce licensing exploded. So that's where there's a huge, huge, huge growth for the last five years in China. And um, that's what we kind of like focus on with our company. Tell us about Unpack AI. What are the problems you're trying to solve? Why is it important for you to be in China to solve those? Unpack AI is a, is a platform where we essentially help non-coders, people without a strong technical, technical background to get into the world of AI machine learning to actually be able to practically build their own AI application. Why is that important to me? During my first company that I built, I was not technical. I studied business. I had a business background and I was trying to build an AI product. However, it was very, very tough. Um, it was very difficult. We had an engineering team. I tried to communicate with them in Chinese about a topic I don't really know about. And it was super tough. Also, my expectations of what we can do and what we cannot do was very, very unclear. So I tried to educate myself and it was very, very tough. It was very difficult to really get into the space of AI as an encoder. Non-technical because there's so much content out there. You have to invest so much time, money. And as an encoder, it's just very overwhelming. So essentially what we're now building with Unpack AI is um, a platform where we use um, educational courses, where we use tools that we develop to make it easier for someone without a technical background to really get into the space and also very practically build their own applications. And this was all based on my experience from my last company. Um, and that's what we're kind of trying to make accessible for people who are business focused. And uh, we talk about product managers, investors, right? Investors who come into the space and say, hey, I want to invest in companies and talk to now mainly tech companies. But if they don't really know what's going on, it's very difficult for them to make wise and smart investment decisions because they cannot really see it from a technical perspective. Um, and nowadays, AI is not really new tech anymore. It's very mainstream. Um, established companies have to employ it. So also established companies are looking for more and more AI expertise, data side expertise, not only engineers, but also business professionals. And this is exactly the market we want to focus on. So where does the gap lie in most people's understanding? And most people includes me. Where does the gap lie in most people's understanding of what AI is capable of? How does Unpack AI try to address that? Okay, so I think um, the, an the answer lies also already in the question, right? What is AI capable of, right? How many people can I ask and say, hey, what is AI, right? What is AI? What is machine learning? What is deep learning, right? Of these things that I'm sure you've heard about, can you really clearly differentiate them? Can you see where the possibility lies there? And I, I know that most people say, yeah, I don't really understand the difference. And by not knowing understand the difference, by not knowing what it is and what it, um, how it kind of like differentiates itself from each other, you'd also really clearly able to see the opportunity there, right? AI is this, AI is actually a huge field of how we use computers to mimic human intelligence, right? And part of that is machine learning, where machine learning is this field of becoming more and more intelligent, a machine becoming more and more intelligent through learning, right? Machine learning. And deep learning is where we utilize the technique of neural networks. So that's a very clear distinction there. And then if you understand these distinctions, now I can actually go and see, hey, applying those different methods, what can I really achieve? So I think being able to differentiate and being able to understand what each field is and stands for is the first step in being able to understanding what it's capable of. So I think in my opinion, that's one of the biggest fields where we actually try to address it. 
And what we do in Pack AI is actually really clearly differentiate those and also say, hey, what is each field? Like what is each technology in each field able able to, uh, capable of? So we go into fields such as NLP, we go into fields such as computer vision, and then we talk about the possibilities there. And someone who's non-technical and goes into it, it's mind-blowing, right? Because like, oh, that's what it can do. Oh. Right. And then off the start in a product manager who previously struggled with kind of like working with the technical team, they also understand what, what the struggles they face. Right. They understand it from a more technical perspective. And I think that's, that's, that's where we think this is super important for every single person. I also hope my family, my parents, my mom and my dad will at some point join our, one of our um, educational classes to really better understand, hey, what are the differences? How can this even impact me? How can I utilize it? My father's opening his own cafe, right? How can I utilize AI? machine and deep learning, right? I am in my business. And I think that's something where there's a huge gap and where there's a huge opportunity as well. Yeah, I think it comes down to, um, I don't think a lot of people really, really understand um, what AI actually is or machine learning actually is. Hence this um, nascent landscape of knowing what it all could be capable of and where the upside and opportunities lie. Um, In public discussion in our public discourse we often see and talk about and expose this big difference between the you know the west and china when it comes to ai capabilities now do you see that as the case we we know that when it came it comes to ai and you can correct me if i'm wrong on this when it comes to ai sheer amount of data can you know is 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 king um it, it, and I and I say that loosely because there's the amount and then there's the, you know, dissection and the understanding and then the strategy based upon and then the execution of the strategy. So AI has a lot of fundamental layers to it. But just having an immense amount of data can, at least from the outset, be extremely helpful to um, making AI very, very capable. Do you see this as a case between, you know, a, a big difference between the West and China when it comes to AI capabilities? And if so, where do you think this this competition will net out? Um, and, and if not, how would you characterize the landscape? Right. Yeah. So for, let me further kind of go in how I would kind of um, differentiate these two landscapes. Um, yes, please. So- the US and Canada in particular, those two countries are still by far ahead when it comes to AI research. So when it comes to new techniques, new developments, it's still mainly coming out of the US and Canada. These are published in papers, into journals that are published in the, in the top journals across the world, and these are widely accessible to anyone. However, the application of these techniques and the application of AI is mainly happening in China, where these techniques are being used and actually being put into practice. So when it comes to application and execution of AI technologies and actually within for, 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 for people, it being in practice and being actually used, it's in China. Um, there are many reasons for that, right? There, if we talk, you just talked about data, there's a huge amount of data accessible that is in China. One reason is that because there's a huge population, right? There are many people on the phone, many people on the internet, um, and that are using these kind of products. There's a lot of data there. And the difference is here, they, China also has data reforms, right? Their regulations still. However, they're not as strictly enforced as they would probably, if they would be in Europe or the US, even more stricter in Europe. 
So these all kind of like environmental factors, they give so many more opportunities for AI technologies to rise and become better and better and better. Because at some point, it's not really anymore about how strong your algorithm is, right? It's just strong. It's, it's, it's about, hey, how much data has been able to learn and train itself on? Because in the end, it's but the last few percentages of accuracy. How accurate is it? And the more data you have, as you just said, um, the more the more quicker and faster it can learn. And that's where China and regards applications very, very, very strong. And that's why we as a company, us positioning ourselves in China, is we have kind of both perspective, right? We utilize the educational, we utilize the content and the, the development from the US, Canada. However, we can also see in China how these are actually being applied in China. And this can go across many different fields, right? If you go um, in, in Douyin, right? TikTok was very famous for its recommender system, being able to utilize um, um, state-of-the-art techniques, which came for sure out of um, the West, right? And then being able to apply them with the technique wealth of data um, to the Chinese market and then building such a powerful recommender system tool that has now become famous. Um, so that's how I kind of see the different split between these two different ecosystems. Awesome. Thanks very much, John. Are there one or two guests, some individuals that you might be able to recommend to us that even yourself might be interested to listen to on this podcast? Um, so for sure, I would name, okay, so this might be a bit biased, but uh, one of my um, colleagues I'm working with is uh, called Etienne. And Etienne um, has been in China for a very long time and has also been actually be able to work as an um, AI consultant, has been in this space for such a long time that he has actually been able to see and help uh, employ AI projects in China. And I think that's someone who can really give also very practical um, insight of what I was just talking about when it comes to application, application in China. And I think that's definitely one of the people I would really love um, to hear from when it comes from the AI development. Thinking about the second person, I would, there are very strong companies in China that uh, are very focused on one technique when it comes, for example, on NLP. There's uh, companies like SenseTime or other companies that are super, super strong um, around that. And I, I have a few people in mind that I could recommend that we can actually talk to and they could get a great insight in regards to how these one of huge Chinese players when it comes to AI is actually be able to um, help um, imply this further in, 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 in when it comes to education for even K-12, um, for, for lower schools um, and, and private education and also public education. And I think one of um, one individuals of such companies, I would love to recommend also for the audience to hear from the Chinese perspective, how AI technology is actually applied in the Chinese ecosystem from the top AI companies in China. Amazing. Well, thank you very much, John, for coming on the on the show today. We really, really appreciate it. And hopefully we'll be able to get in touch with some of those guests and maybe even have you back on again one time soon. Thanks again. Sure. Thank you very much. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, Make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation. And if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co. And be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Zai Jian.